0: Hello and welcome to Searching for Elephants Season 2, focusing on entrepreneurship and leadership. Each week, Tom Begrie and I, Angus, are going to bring you a leader and really try and get under their skin, really try and figure out what makes them tick to give you an insight into how they lead. First up, we have an incredible lady called Wasfi She is the leader of Grange Park Opera. Now, if you're like me and the word opera sends you running out of the building and into the nearby forest, then just hold on a second. Slow your pace. Because Wasfi is a quite incredible human being. Part performer, part CEO, part musician. Some human beings are just naturally able to be interesting. And my dad and I both agree that Wasfi is, is exactly that. So, without further ado, Wasfi Khani. You were born in the, the East End of London. Yeah. To Indian parents. Yeah. I imagine you are one of very few people with that sort of start to life, who by the age of 16 is playing violin in the, the National Youth Orchestra, and then to go on and play music at Oxford. How did that happen?
1: So when you describe it, it sort of happens in one sentence, but of course it doesn't. It happens Across over many, years. many years, and you start in one place. I was just thinking the other day that when I was about, when I was still in my primary school, so I was about 10, there was another girl in the primary school. And quite early on, I heard her mother play the piano, and I was very fascinated. That's the first time I really heard someone play the piano. And I begged my mother to get a piano, and living in a council flat, and there was one place where you could put it. And somehow they helped my, other, my mother, who never seen a piano probably in her life, because I don't think there were many pianos in India because of the weather. she They arranged for her to get it, and then we just used to play the piano on our own, and we didn't have any teachers and... They gave us a couple of books. These are the, the rights, Kenneth Wright, he was called. Um, and they gave us some books and I taught myself to read music and then there was some harder music, but I never quite figured out how to play it. And then when I was 12 and I went to a secondary school and I got some proper lessons. So, you know, it starts, as I said, it starts gradually. And it was just because of this, these people, the rights. They were the first people I kind of fell in love with music. And I remember when my hamster died, that um, living. This is again. I must have been about ten. I remember the. I felt the only way I could explain to people how sad I felt that my hamster had died was that there was a little piece of Beethoven that I used to play. Very very simple piece. No, actually, I was more than ten. I think I was about, probably about twelve by then. But I loved my hamster. Uh, was the. How much did to, you love to, your hamster? To
2: take no. <laughs> to take it all the way to the present day, yeah. you in the uh, at Grange Park Opera are supporters of music in schools. Something about the robins or the yeah. So
1: the project we do, I, I like to emphasise that apart from my, you know our goal is to put on excellent operas and at a very high standard with with world class, with properly world class singers. Everyone says they've got world class singers, but people who are singing at the Met and at um, the Royal Opera House. So apart from doing that, we've worked in prisons for more than thirty years. Every single year in a prison. I've had some pretty dodgy people living in this house. (laughs) No longer. And uh, every week of the school year, we give 4,000 primary school children a half-hour singing class. And these are exclusively in schools that have no access to music. So there are many state primary schools where there is no access to music. That's shocking. And so it's... I, find I was astonished. And we started this project in 2013 with just like five schools in Hampshire. And, you know, we've really run a mission to make it as big as possible. We're now at 4,000 pupils every week of the school year. It's quite a big project. It's called Primary Robins. And we somewhere have...
2: out there, there is a, another Wasfukani coming through. Listening to music for the first time, yeah, played music as you did, yes. to the lady with a piano, yes. and beginning That's to
1: dream. That's it. That's it. Because you don't know how it touches them. And the other thing about the Primary Robins thing is because we supply the professional teacher, he that per that teacher actually facilitates better music teaching in the other teachers. Because they can see, you know, even if they see how you take a singing class. So then some of the other teachers feel a bit more confident about taking a singing class. They learn as well. Yeah.
0: So I wanted to ask you, getting that start where you had a piano, but you didn't have any traditional teaching. You were teaching yourself. That's a very particular start. What do you think that that gave you so teaching your sad start as opposed to? I don't
1: think it's a hard start. I think we all have, we all have hard, we all have starts in different ways. I do not feel sorry for myself. I think what happens is that when little Johnny is told that he's got to go to his um, cello class every week, when he wants to rebel when he's a teenager, he gives up the cello because I didn't have these classes and I was, and then when I got the classes, I thought, oh, okay, my mother. And father paid absolutely no interest in it at all. Mm. I, I won't go into. In fact, my father actively discouraged it. They, had get, they were absolutely not interested. All they said is that we had to be top of the class. That's the only thing they were interested in, and that we had to work harder than everyone else. So, when you rebelled, um, you know, I just practiced my violin more and more,
2: showing early signs of the indomitability that uh, I've seen characterise your uh, your current work. In the world of opera. But you had a little gap in the middle, Wasfi. You 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 left music and went into computing. So so when and I start, So was... when
1: I left Oxford, some of my lovely contemporaries, whom I'm still in touch with, they actually wanted to become professional musicians. I actually realized that there was a good violinist, the only job I would ever get would be in an orchestra. And whatever level you enter the profession at, so if you enter the profession in an, in an orchestra, when you're aged 50, you won't be in much... You, you know, it's not like eventually you'll be the conductor. You're just in the orchestra forever. And I don't know, there was something in me that I realised I just didn't want to be in an orchestra forever and I wasn't good enough to do anything else. So I we didn't have any money and, you know, there was no question of my parents giving me any money at all. Actually, what's interesting, Angus, is in those days, when when I went to Oxford, it didn't cost my parents anything. And in fact, I was even given, for the first time. I was given money. My college bill was paid. I think my basic residential bill was paid. Paid in my college, and I was given this money to live on. It's the first time, you know. I was think I was given like a thousand pounds to live on for the term, and it was like a massive amount of money. It was incredible. I could buy some clothes. And that was funded by the state I, or by that the university was funded or by the state. Yeah. And they even funded me to come to London for my violin lessons. So, you know, how the world has changed. Mm -hmm. So, at the end, I realised I didn't want to be a violinist and I actually was a lodger in... Some people were very kind to me because I didn't go back home. In fact, there's an amazing liberal um, lord called Dick Taverne, Lord Taverne, he wasn't a lord then... And he famously um, disagreed with, the, he, he believed in the common market and he was part of the Labour Party, stepped out of the Labour Party. He's now about 90 and stood as an independent MP in Lincoln and famously won. He's a very, very clever guy. And him and his wife let me lodge with them free when I left Oxford. And I was just trying to figure out what to do. And I became a shorthand typist. And to pay for my shorthand typing course, I actually wallpapered people's houses. So I used to do things for a living. So in my 20s, I was kind of earning money like that. Then I became a shorthand typist. And meanwhile, Dick Taverne was saying, you know, you need to have some kind of a job other than making curtains, typing and doing wallpaper. And he suggested that I should look at computer programming because I'd been very good at maths and I've got um, A-levels in maths and things, and I am actually quite numerate. So I went to Plessy Radar and did a sort of aptitude test, and I, became, I started computer programming there. And then I kind of just got into the computer programming thing, which, which suited me. I like doing puzzles. I still like doing puzzles. So that's why I went into computing. It was a very interesting time in computing because... So I left Oxford in 78, and by the time I was in... You know, I'd done a bit of computing. Mid-80s is the time when... Mainframes, which are computers that were the size of this terrace of houses, almost the power could be put into a box this big. Mm. So this is the beginning of microcomputers. Sure. It's you know it's it's it predates that. So you could have these computers, and it gave people the the power to really, to talk to the computer themselves rather than having it all on this tape and punched cards. So I used to have to be the interface between, as a programmer, you were the interface between the man who's trying to, for example, the Kuwait Investment Office man, who's trying to computerise his invoicing system for the first time. And he'd need someone like me to design a system, program it, and then just say, okay, what you have to do is put that data in and you'll get this data out the other end. But the beginning of microcomputers meant that you didn't need this intermediary and you could actually, with spreadsheets and things, you could actually run your work yourself. Massive change. Do you remember? You're too young, aren't no, you? No, 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 no,
2: no. I've, I've lived through that in my early um, So I'm, a, I'm early 65.
1: Career. How old are you, Sixty. Lee? Okay, so you would, yeah. So,
2: so early 80s was just when I arrived, I arrived in yeah. Britain in
1: 81. So, so you were yeah. witnessing that big change. It was very interesting to be in the middle of it.
2: I, I still sometimes wonder why on earth, when I arrived here without a job from South Africa, I didn't think to get any job I liked in computing. I mean, any job I could, any basic job, sweeping yeah. the floor of the computer room. Because, uh, yeah, what a thing to arrive at in, in the world, at the, the time of yeah. the world. But, so you jumped... From wallpaper up, pretty sensibly, and and short hand types. a skill that it, stayed it, with me forever. Into, yes, no, no, I appreciate that. Really do appreciate that. But you j- jumped in terms of, <laughs> of earning a living from that into this into my brand computer. new, brand new world where you were clearly in demand of working for huge businesses, which is normally a good way of making a fortune. Were, were you running your own business or were you just literally well, self-employed a, contracting?
1: So no, no, not I was salaried in these businesses, okay. being being they used to call it body shopped to various other companies, and. Um, then I bought this house and then I became 30. And I thought, how old are you? 29. OK, when I was 30, I had this massive kind of crisis thinking, oh, my God, I'm so old. What's going to happen? And I've got this house. When I'm 80, what won't I have done? And I decided the thing I won't wouldn't have done if I just carried on getting richer, because that's what I would have done. I would have just got richer and I probably would have I don't know. Yeah, uh, you would have had a great sure.
2: career in, in computers.
1: So, so I, I, uh, I looked. Tech. I said, if I was eighty, looking back at my life, what would I regret not having done? And the thing I would have regretted is not having done more with my music. And that's the moment when I. A, I decided to set up a small little consultancy myself. I had some quite good clients, a BT. I used to have to go to various BT <laughs> offices. Sound like quite a, quite a good client. <laughs> yeah, Because, anyway, of course, I could set stuff up on on microcomputers and give it yeah. to, you know, secretaries, and they could achieve a lot of things. Mm. So that yeah, so, so that, 13, I, you decided I did, I did to give that, up this, this... And then I started studying military. conducting a bit, and then I kind of went into... Then I made a little opera company, then I made another opera company, then I went to work at Garsington. So then I got into my... I kind of stopped computing, really, in about 1992 or
0: 1993. So you, you started your own business... Yeah. In order to,
1: yeah, to fuel your music career. Yeah, to have the flexibility yeah. to say, OK, I'm not going to work for a week because I'm going to put on a concert or I'm going to... Yeah, so that, that's what I did. But but I could you could do it with a minimal amount of money. But, you know, I don't have a very... I know my house is a little bit fancy now, but I, I've never, ever... You know, I'm not an extravagant person.
2: Opera, though, is, is an extravagance. Opera is a Well, well
1: people say that. People say that. But, of course, you know, in the 19th century, Verdi operas, this is the opera of the people. The, this were, you know, these operas were written for the people. And, you know, you know when Verdi wrote Rigoletto, he wouldn't let anyone see the score till the first night because he knew that the organ grinder would be playing La Donna Immobile before it hit the stage. <laughs> so he had to have this <laughs> So whole it was thing. popular music. It, it was, was pop. popular music. Yeah, OK. And we forget about that.
2: You, you threw throw away line so I started a little opera company then I started another little opera company then I started another and then I joined Garsington. Well, well, how do you start an opera
1: company so so when so when i first i was I was doing my conducting and I was uh, going to study various places so studying various places and then one in one of my concerts, I did the overture to the marriage of Figaro <laughs> and and I got to the end of it and I thought, what I'd really like to do is hear the whole opera now. Um, I hadn't actually been to the opera very much. So I think I'd been to the opera once before I was 20, Then I think I went again when I was 26 or something. So I didn't actually go, I didn't really know much about opera, and I, but I knew a lot about music. I knew how to read a score. I could understand it. And yeah, so I started off just by putting on one opera, in St. Luke's Sydney Street off well. the Kings Road. Yes, I know yeah. it very okay. well. It was yeah, freezing, yeah, yeah. it was in November.
2: Fantastic space, though. Were you in, not in the church?
1: In the church. Wow. Yeah, okay. Huge. And, you know, we had to hire a lighting rig and hire some scaffolding. And I'd never done any of this before. And I was just kind of commandeered various friends and managed to do it. And it was kind of.
2: And you had to sell tickets, there.
1: And I had to sell some tickets, yeah, to try and cover my costs. Did you
2: sell them out? You did
1: probably. I, th- you? I sold. I sold enough. I think. Yeah, I don't quite know who came to these this fairly really bad opera that I put on, <laughs> mind you. It isn't that bad because Christopher Ostamboglis, who was Figaro, he's a bass, and he sings all over the world, and, and it wasn't that bad. No. Though, but they were very young. So anyway, so that so that when you start, you start an opera company, you put on an opera, then you put on another opera, and then you've started an opera company. And then, and then, of course, I think what happened is that at the same time I started working in prisons and I'd become, I'd just, my whole prison thing is, initially we'd, we used to create an opera and then I'd go to, I'd say to a national trust house, well, come and do it. You have to put up the tent. We need this amount of money and you can keep the rest of the money. And I used to do it in national trust houses. I did it in Cootes Bank, in all kinds of places. And then one day I thought, I think I'll do this in a prison.
0: What comes before that thought? Why do it in a prison?
1: Um, basically, I've always thought, there but for the grace of God. Mm. And I think because of a few things that happened in my childhood, I could, you know, there was... I won't, can't go into it, but my... Well, I could go into it, but, you know, we always thought that my father would could go to prison, and rightly so, <laughs> if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievably violent. Really? I used to I usually say, I lived in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Hmm. I did, which is probably why I've got no small talk talk left. <laughs> um, so, so Angus, you ask me why why a prison, and I think well, I went to school behind a prison, and I'd always been very aware of this idea there. But for the grace of God, go high. Mm-hmm. People don't go to prison because they've got black crosses on their hearts when they were born. Right. Something happens to them, and they ended up end up there, and. I had always believed they'd done bad things, but it doesn't make them bad people. And I, you have to believe in redemption. Yeah, you absolutely... You, you either have to kill them or believe in redemption. And, and
2: rehabilitation should be yeah. the whole job yeah. of prison.
1: They have to have the opportunity yeah. to redeem themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And prison has to do that. Anyway, so so first I just did a couple of shows, but then I had this idea that we'd actually put on an opera and the prisoners would be in it. And the governor of Wormwood Scrubs, which was the prison I then knew... Um, I suggested it to him, and he said he thought this was a great idea. But the, but the, the, the stable population of that prison um, was the people serving life sentences, mainly for murder. Um, the rest are transient. The rest are all short sentences. Yeah. They're the people. They, they're the people. The people serving life sentences. You have to kind of have a career for them because because if you're going to serve nine years, fifteen years, even five years in order to give the pr- purpose of the prison is to give them some kind of shape to those years so they come out as a useful member of society right so I we, he said that we could do a joint production with one with Scrubs and I said the piece that I want to do that I've always wanted to do but couldn't do because I didn't have a chorus was Sweeney Todd which is <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it, it didn't make the front page of the Times but that's not why I did it <laughs> anyway so I did my Sweeney Todd and I did various other things and I was getting a lot of publicity A for being a woman conductor and B because of the stuff but I wasn't doing it for the publicity I was doing it because it just seemed like a good idea yeah so I did my prison thing so you're doing it you're doing it prison thing and
2: yeah. you're conducting
1: yeah you went then to garsington
2: did they recruit you they
1: first they they asked whether we'd do a performance of term screw they had a tiny tiny festival and then what leonard ingrams realized was that I, he, you know, he was the founder of grass he was the founder yeah was that ar's brilliant at all the maths and i could probably and i knew how to run a company and b he was very he was very publicity hungry and he knew that I would bring publicity with me. So I did and I built up the company. And then, But after about three, four years, I was being advised by supporters that they said, it'll never be yours, you should start your own. And that's when I started um, Grange Park Opera in, in the Hampshire location. Yes.
2: To do that is an unbelievable achievement. Well, it talk I, I, one I, of Britain's I, richest families into backing. You... you, you uh, Create, created a building
1: so, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so so, they, so 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 I did it in stages. A lot of people knew me because of Garsington and because of all the other stuff I'd been doing. I did it in stages. First, I did. I just built a small theatre inside the orangery, and it wasn't until four years later that I built the bigger theatre that you see down there mm. now. And I stayed. We stayed there till two thousand and about fourteen when Lord Ashburton told us that he wasn't going to renew our lease.
0: Just comparing the two the two businesses, we've got the computer programming company yeah, on one yeah. hand and yeah. then the Opera on the other.
1: Yeah.
0: Can you compare the two in terms of a leadership thing? Are you just no, responding no, no, to no, tasks but, left, but, right and centre? No, no, the,
1: the, the, the computer programming thing, I wasn't a leader. All I had to do was just turn up at British Telecom's office and do the deed and come home and send them a bill. I wasn't employing people. So I wasn't a leader. I was a problem solver. And okay. similarly, with the opera company thing, I mean, the way I set it up probably is I could do it because I'm a problem solver. I'm a terrible manager, but I have very, very good people. I have no interest in managing people. I just want to be on my own, that's all. So I have very good people who manage whole rafts of sections of Grange Park Opera. Mm. And um, so I'm not a leader. I'm a, I see myself as a kind of problem solver.
2: That's really interesting. That's really interesting. I'm just going to ask you. Do you think all leaders are problem solvers? No, 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 no. I don't think that at all. Uh, I, I think all leaders bring something very specific uh, to, to, to the way they... To, to, they just do. They bring something specific. I, I'm, I'm an ideas man. So I lead life search by saying, this is a really good idea. Come on, let's do this. And then other people tear it apart, break it down and go, no, let's not do that. And I'm quite good at saying, oh, okay then. But. Life, which is the it was in itself the idea. So that, so that's what I do. I'm not a very good problem solver.
1: So so I'm You're I'm good. I'm more lowly than you because I go oh I think I'll do that and I think I'll do it by doing that and that and that and that and that. And will you help me? Will you help me? So I do it at a I'm one level below you. <laughs>
2: Well, see, that's ridiculous. But I, I know what you're trying to say. What you're saying is you have a more basic approach to it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a bit yeah. more airy-fairy. Yeah, but then,
1: but then the difference between... You're is, a
2: mathematician and I'm a... But the,
1: but a, the difference uh, between you and me also is my only goal is I'm not doing this to get richer. You know, I, don't, I, I haven't had a pay... I love grief. that you,
2: you think I am.
1: <laughs> well, no, but no, no, when you have an idea, your idea has to be commercially successful. When I have an idea, it doesn't have to be commercially successful. Ex- all I have to do is get enough people to pay for it. That's all I have to do. So it is, it's a big, big difference. Yours ultimately has to make a ton of money.
2: Fair enough. Fair enough. Does that sound I, I like... I shall spend the rest of this interview trying to think of exceptions to that rule in my leadership career <laughs> because it does sound very limiting. But you... you... I don't have to
1: make a ton so of So i tell
2: you who you do lead. I, can, I see you leading, it, leading them all the time. For, no matter how many times you say you're not a leader, you are. Because you lead all those... Uh, supporting patrons, whatever you you know, all those those people.
1: Who no, I'm you a recognize. I'm a showman. If I make a stirring speech, yes. and I say, "This is what we're going to do." I'm Joan of Arc, hmm. Hmm.
2: <laughs> but
1: I hope they don't burn me at the stake.
2: No, no, and no, no so, they don't. They send no. you bucket loads of cash for the asking. Yeah, it's an amazing but they, thing. But
1: I think it makes a difference that they can see that I'm not doing this, and that I'm not doing it to get richer. They know that.
2: So, was when when the charity of which you were chief exec, when all the trustees and the whole organisation you had built was given its marching orders by the mm, uh, once noble people of Hampshire, you ended up in with, with a charity with a great big machine and, and nowhere to run it. Uh, just talk us through what happened then.
1: My trustees were slight, slightly dismayed because we had this charity um, and they said, well... I think you should find a new venue and I think it should be much closer to London. So I started, you know, like I'd found the place down in Hampshire. I got my maps out. I looked at a few places. I talked to the National Trust, actually. And then a very strange thing happened. Ivano Ruggeri, the guy I hang out with, the laziest man in the world... He's an Italian poet. (laughs) He's just an Italian lazy person. He was looking at Twitter one day, and he saw that The Telegraph was tweeting about the fact that Bamber Gascoigne had inherited a house from his aunt, who was a duchess, and he was the residual beneficiary of 350 acres in Surrey and a 14th-century house. Aged. He was in his early 80s, he's now in his mid-80s, and Bamber and Christina don't have any children. I know Bamber and Christina, but I didn't want them to know that we'd been chucked out of Hampshire. So I had to send some spies along. Now, you you might think I would have done been more subtle than this. I actually sent Joanna Lumley along. (laughs) (laughs) Kaboom! I sent Joanna and her husband, Stephen Barlow, who does a lot of conducting for me, and a couple of other friends who know Surrey very well, to, we got permission from Bamber through a kind of back door, for them to go and have a look at the house and to have a look at the gardens. So I hadn't seen it, but my spies had saw it. And we thought, will the housekeeper, Pat, recognise Joanna Lovely, but we decided she wouldn't.
0: (laughs) You've talked a couple of times about how, as a company, it's not a commercial operation. All you have to do is to get enough wealthy people to give you money for it, and then it's okay. Yeah. So I'm wondering...
1: Well, poor people can give me money as well.
0: Poor people can give you money as well.
1: I take money from anyone.
0: Does the world of opera speaking for the world of opera yes yes, you go to prisons but the band above that the people who can't afford to donate does the world of opera care about that if you're attracting the big money donors that can keep you going
1: so well the people who buy tickets for the opera so 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 i have this is how it works I have a plan that I'm going to have Bryn Terfel singing The Flying Dutchman, I'm going to have so-and-so singing this, and we cost it, and we say it's going to cost this amount of money, and I reckon I can, half of it, I can get from ticket sales. So then I have to raise the other half from donations. So anyone can come to the opera who can buy a ticket. Now, there's some expensive tickets, but in fact, just recently, it's quite interesting, I actually rebranded, um, and I've, we now have during the six-week season, there'll be 3,000 seats that are less than £90. Now, you think £90... In fact, there are loads for 30 as well. You think £90 is a lot of money, but, you know, if you really want... People to spend £90 in the pub in the evening. I mean, I don't, but I think yeah. it's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I've very purposefully allocated a good chunk of good seats, yeah, that are less than £100. There's a very important point I'd like to make. The reason opera is so expensive is this. When you go to a play at the National Theatre, I see five people on the stage. To support five people on the stage, backstage, max, you need another... Well, say say it's a very technical show. Say you have 10 people backstage. You're paying five people, Mm -hmm. yeah? In an opera, I've got 70 people in the orchestra pit. Say I've really cut back and I've only got 50. So I've got 50 in the orchestra pit, there's normally 40 in the chorus. Say I've cut back and I've only got 24. I've got probably at least six principals. Yeah, so I'm getting to close on 100 people. To costume those people every night to make sure their clothes are clean, I'm talking about, you know, you need at least five, ten people. Mm-hmm. On the, the crew, moving the scenery around, because it's a big, big stage, again, at least ten a night. Mm-hmm. Lighting people. So that's why opera's expensive.
2: You're employing those people for the season. Yes. And the season is eight weeks long?
1: Six, seven weeks, yeah. Right.
2: And they work flat out for that. And yeah. You, you pay them well and you yeah. raise all the money needed to keep them well. Yes.
1: What happens to them afterwards? They're, they're, they're largely contractors. Now, the singers, for example, will just, they spend their lives, you know, they're going to, like, Simon sides in Paris singing. Oh, the big, big stars, and, Mélodon, yes, yes. and then he'll, he, you know, his contract with us is for three months. In fact, at the end of the contract, he's actually overla- overlapping with the Royal Opera House. He's doing something there. So, even the smaller stars. And similarly, the wardrobe people, they take contracts. So they'll take a contract with me, they'll take a contract with Wexford, they'll take a contract with The Globe. And so a lot of these theatres, you, you don't always need the same number of people, so you don't have this big salaried staff, you're buying, um, ex- buying in your expertise.
2: Understood, understood. And you, have to, you, you say you don't lead, but you do have to lead those. You have to inspire them, they have to want to work at Great uh, Park, they have to want that contract. Uh, uh, Other yeah. people
1: do that. So this is how I'm very, very lucky. So I have, you know, one person who just deals with all the technicians, another person who deals with all the chorus, another person who deals... And I want all to all say, say that to you, you must have
2: created that. No, to no, appoint kind of... whoever runs the wardrobe people for you, you must have appointed them.
1: So the, we, I was involved in appointing, he's called the production manager, who will be speaking to the wardrobe people. Um
2: That sounds like every other business leader. I, I was, it grows a business of scale. It's about was, who you employ.
1: I was, I was kind of involved, but I didn't the key person, the two other people really just said to me they like they thought he was very good and they wanted to have him. And I said I want to have a conversation with him, and then of course it's fine. So I you know, I'm I'm slightly removed from deciding whether but I will say, mind you, after the season I do say, Oh, I didn't like that assistant wig person. She seemed to be outside smoking her cigarettes all the time. And they, you know, they will... You know, I do notice what everyone's doing. I notice who works hard. And then, and you know... Why on
2: earth do you say that that isn't business leadership and you're not a business leader? What's for you you, you, no, you know I, because it is. of the way exactly I do That's exactly what business leadership is.
1: I know, what do you think... Is.
2: <laughs> I do think that anyway. Oh, well, you have a particular style and method, but you yeah. are the leader of Grange Park Opera in all things, and yeah. they follow your commands and your wishes. Yeah. And, and you empower and trust them to do the big job. But, I mean, that's when just I'm, normal when business I'm, leadership. When I'm there, that there's a load of people outstanding business doing.
1: The, the, you know, yeah. I don't. There's most of the things that happen on the site of an evening. I'm actually removed from all of them, and I will. You know, I. You know, if there's if there's litter. I'll ask, you know, and I'll pick it up, or if there are lots of weeds, I'll start weeding. But I will ask why the litter's there, and whose job was it to pick it up, and am I the only person who can see the litter? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, that's exactly what he does at some level. Is like it? He, he, I mean, is the, it? It's a a telephone based company. Yeah. He's not on the phones. You yeah, know.
1: but Tom, what you well, do... I'm continually
0: wandering around telling people how to do things so better. I,
1: so I think what you do, which I probably do in my funny, small, Indian woman way, is that you you do have to walk around and be charming, uh, which is exhausting. Oh,
2: I, I see you do it. So you're every absolutely night, unbelievable.
1: But it's just very, very tiring. Oh, it is. I yeah. know, no, you are it's a, a You said you're a showman. Yeah. You're, you're performing. Yeah. And, and what's more... You know what's worse? You, is You have to have some clothes to wear every night. I need a valet. <laughs> For the people, probably
0: quite many who listen to this podcast, who will never go to an opera. Can you explain to them why you've dedicated your life to opera?
1: The first thing is you must come to the opera because the opera isn't anything special. You don't have to know anything. I hate this phrase, opera buff. You don't have to know anything. All you have to do, you have to walk into a theatre, sit in a seat, and there'll be other people sitting in seats with a bit of luck, and then a narrative will unfold accompanied by music. And the surtitles always tell you what they're singing if they're singing in a foreign language. And here's the crucial bit. All you have to do is feel things. It's all about feeling things. You'll feel something, but the person you're sitting next to will probably feel something slightly different. But what you're feeling is really telling you about yourself, about your past, about your potential, And about your humanity. And that's why I think that's what opera does, that theatre can't do as well because it doesn't have the musical element. But I actually think because of the music, it informs your humanity. And in that respect, it actually makes you a better person.
2: And the difference between how opera does that is because the human voice takes one naturally into a space of emotion. Good point. I remember quite clearly going... The Grange Park opera and hearing opera sung for the first time. And feeling that, that the, the, the sheer power of the notes, the sheer depth of the emotion necessary to sing like that, uh, brings it out in you. And it is that connection between the music, the voice and your emotions. You went straight to it, you know what you're talking about. But it, it is that that just made me think, okay, I get it now, I really do. This, you, no other art form makes you feel like opera makes you feel.
1: And uh, uh, an an interesting point, Angus, is that people say, why don't young people go to the opera? I actually think it's something that comes to you later in life when you've experienced more of life. A lot of opera's about death. And when you're young, you haven't really experienced death. So that's why I think it's a bit like gardening. It comes to you later in life. I think Um, you're
2: absolutely right. I also think that as you get older, so you get more emotional. You know, old people tear up a lot more easily than young people, generally speaking, I find. And the older you get, the more, more prone you are to crying about stuff. Uh, uh, but you're very happy when you get older to go into that emotional space, to let the art take you in there. Yeah. Mm. And you know what's coming. You know your heartstrings are going to be pulled left, right and centre. Or oh, you're going to end up roaring with laughter, one of the two. As
0: I understand it from him, your operas have been tremendously successful.
1: So, Angus, I never use the word successful about sure. myself. I just always feel I'm that poor person whose hamster died when I was twelve. So I never use the word but so the the most frequent question I get asked is it's very annoying. Could we have a cup of coffee so you can tell me about how to do fundraising? You can't kind of teach someone how to do it. So when you say what would you if, if someone's plates aren't spinning, hmm. it's because usually they haven't they're spending more money than, than's coming in. Sure. But you can't just it, you can't just suddenly magic up money for them. Um you say
2: that you say that, but I know how to get fundraising right. You approach it with incredible energy, absolute refusal to, to be put off by anything. You go with incredible courage to the richest people you can find, you hurl yourself at them, convince them that you are worth backing, and yeah. they fall for that. Yeah. They fall for that like but flies, and, and and then you then you take it further and you evidence to them time after time after again that this was money well it spent was, yeah. and, and that it's a great cause, and then they keep the money flooding in. So you can have a cup of coffee and just repeat that to people whilst you... Just well, do what I do, because you do it fantastically.
1: No, no, because it's, it's a different... So, you know, people have different amounts of energy to devote their company and I I think it's pointless saying that they can see that I don't know anyway I I think people do want to back something that's looking like it's it's successful and which sort of puts pressure on you because you have to make sure that the next thing's successful. The other thing I try to do is I try to not do everything just really, really normal opera repertoire. I'm always doing something weird and wacky. And I think people appreciate that. So I I did a Rimsky-Korsakov opera that was was a brilliant production that hadn't been performed here since 1909. And you can put on a brilliant production just by employing brilliant people. Um, Anyway, so I... So, if your opera come, if your plates are crashing to the ground, there isn't a magic bullet. There are probably lots of elements that you need to look at. And you probably need to work harder. Uh,
2: do you know, I was about to say that there is a magic bullet. It, it doesn't always work, but it's quite likely to be a lot more energy than you're putting in, a lot more courage, and a lot yeah. harder work. It, it, yeah. if, if you bring those three things into a failing venture, uh, provided you've got the business now to to not make the yeah. terrible
0: mistakes, then okay. that you can turn it that you've got a good chance of turning it around. Yeah. Yeah. So if you were the twelve year old girl that you were growing up today, what advice would you give to yourself?
1: I'm always being asked this question.
0: If you don't want to answer it. You don't have to. <laughs>
1: Kind of I think I've sort of covered it in all the other things Okay, but okay, well. so you know what what do I know you know of course I you know you know a million things that you didn't know when you were 12 mm. but it's kind of a bit pointless saying if I'd done that that mm. would have done differently because you don't know it you don't know if that's true really mm. do you if you had done something differently whether the outcome what the outcome would have been
2: yeah well I, let's let's put it slightly differently because it was your 30-year-old self that did something very odd. You decided to forego a money-making career and, and not strive for the top in an area where you were expert and highly in demand and very well paid, which is what most people dream of. You decided to back your slightly wobbly passion for opera.
1: No, I think what I did was fine. No, I think do you
2: my... not see it as hugely brave? Because we do.
1: No, I think I think my life's got better, you know, having had this very strange start I think my life's got better and better and better and Tom I do I will I would say that I'm so lucky that people you and you know there aren't people like you but there are other people Mm. putting money into this company I am so lucky I take none of it for granted and you know I'm very flattered when you say these nice things about me but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely, unbelievably grateful to you and my wonderful range of donors. You know, some of whom give £200 a year and some give £50,000 a year. And they do it because they believe that culture is important.
2: That gratitude is entirely reciprocated because we get fantastic value for money. It's not really value for money. It's value for commitment, value for emotion, value for everything. I don't go to Grange Park Opera ever without having a time that means something to me at a different level to almost any of the other experiences that I that I spend time and hobbies on. And yeah, you deliver a phenomenal experience. And it seems to me almost every time that your force of personality, that, that force field that you march around with, it's that that does it. It's a it's a great farc opera without you. Mm, you need a succession plan, and I have no idea how you'd begin to do
1: that. Well, this that a I showman think,
2: mathematician.
1: I think it'll kind of change, but I I, I don't I don't particularly want to stop. No. That was a very nice speech, no. and I shouldn't have cut cut across the end of it. I don't particularly want to stop working. I think people get very boring when they stop working, and I'll probably be doing this in some shape and form for the next ten years. And um, I I do actually think about that. You know, I have some young people in the office who I genuinely think. To, to, to be the person with the flashing light on their head—that's what you need. Mm.
2: Mm. Wasfi, thank you very much indeed. Lovely. Where do you, and, where uh, do you
1: guys have to get back to? Where do you live? He's,
2: he's local. local. I'm going up to Moswell. Easy. Excellent. I'm getting
0: on my motorbike and driving to the window. Can't believe I'm saying this, but after that, I'm ready for an opera. Thanks, Wasfi. Next Wednesday, I've got Melvin Noajé coming at you. He is a new leader at LifeSearch. But he is not new to leadership. He has led many times before, including clubs where he found gold maces and butchers cleavers. If you want to know what I'm talking about, listen in next week. (laughs) And to make sure you don't forget, please subscribe. Give us that five-star review and all of those other lovely podcast things. That is season two, off with a bang. Thanks all for listening. See you next week. Bye.